It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Thursday, December 9th, 2021, and this is the Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for tuning in. Always appreciative to have each and every one of you listening live 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern time every weekday or on the podcast. GuyBensonShow.com, our website, all the ways to listen either live or later. GuyBensonShow.com on social media at Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram. Maybe check us out. Toss us a follow if you are so inclined. On today's program, limited lineup. Mark Thiessen will be here later this hour. We'll be talking about foreign policy with him, Russia, a pretty extraordinary report from the Associated Press about what the Biden administration is apparently going to urge Ukraine to do. Appeasement of Russia. We will get into all of that with Thiessen. Also some Olympic stuff, China, etc. And then in our final hour, the five o'clock hour Eastern time, Bill Malugin, our colleague here at Fox News, will join us from on the ground in Texas. He has not wavered in his coverage on the border crisis. I know that much of the press will occasionally look down there and say, oh, that's not great, and then move on. Bill Malugin is documenting day in and day out what's happening at the southern border, and it is ugly. The situation is not improving. He has the details, he has firsthand accounts, and he talks to his sources in law enforcement and Border Patrol every day. We will ask him for those details when we chat with Bill Malugin coming up a bit later on. Fox News alert as we get going here. First hour of three, let's bring you the stats that we always do at the top. Confirmed cases of COVID-19 in the United States all in. Since March of last year, 49.5 million. And the real number is much higher. I will note briefly, since we're talking about COVID cases, even more data coming out overnight. Every single case of Omicron that has been documented so far in the world that we are aware of has been very mild. Many asymptomatic Very few, if any, hospitalizations, no deaths. That is excellent news on the virulence point, which to me is the most important question about the new variant. The death toll with or of COVID in the United States over these last 20 months or so, now 791,933. The Dow at this hour is up 28 points. Dow's at 35,780. Well, it is a bit of a significant day here at Fox News. We're at the D.C. Bureau in our nation's capital, broadcasting as we often do and usually do from the Tony Snow studio. But our headquarters is up in midtown Manhattan, just east of Times Square. And as we talked about yesterday a little bit, there was a disturbing incident 
overnight Tuesday into Wednesday, just after midnight, the Fox News Christmas tree on Fox Square was burned down. It was an act of arson. The suspect was arrested. I'll get back to the suspect and his arrest in just a moment. But first, let me remind you if you have already heard or inform you if you have not already heard that in the 5 p.m. hour today, so coming up in less than two hours on the 5 on Fox News Channel, there is going to be a relighting of the new Christmas tree. I think that's pretty impressive. The tree was burned to a crisp by this disturbed individual early Wednesday morning. And here we are Thursday afternoon and there's a new tree up and it's going to be lit up on live television on the five at five o'clock Eastern. That is an impressive turnaround. And I'm glad that our leadership here at Fox said we're not going to let this event deter us. We don't care about the haters who are celebrating this or mocking. I saw Stephen Colbert, just as a little sidetrack here, small digression, Stephen Colbert, who, again, at some point was very funny. He's smart and funny. He tweeted in response to this story that the Christmas tree was on fire at Fox News, I'm paraphrasing, and now it's getting its own show on Fox News. And I was just confused what even the joke was. Like you can say whether it's funny or not to joke about this act of arson that thank God didn't hurt anyone. But if you're going to joke about it, at least make it funny. Right? Like I saw someone joke that Chris Cuomo was not taking his firing very well. The joke being that he was the one who did it. Or like, you know, Stelter or someone else at a competitor. That's a joke. We can discuss whether or not that those are whether they're funny whether it's you know too soon or whatever but if you're going to put into the universe as a comedian a joke about what happened at least have the decency to make it like coherent and entertaining i don't understand what the joke is right the on fire christmas tree now has its own show what it doesn't make any sense Greg Gutfeld saw that tweet and then retweeted it and quoted it saying, yeah, the burning Christmas tree is already beating you in the ratings. Speaking to Colbert. See, that is a joke that is funny. Or at least there's a point to it. I don't even get what the point was in any case. Digression over. The tree lighting's happening at 5 p.m. Eastern, and I'm happy that that's happening. Some Christmas resilience at Fox News over this very unfortunate incident. But let me tell you a bit about what happened with the suspect here. From foxnews.com. The man accused of torching a Christmas tree outside the New York City headquarters of Fox News was freed Wednesday night without bail. Shortly after prosecutors reduced the number of charges against him from seven to three. Here's a quote from this guy who is homeless and seems to be mentally ill. I've been thinking about lighting that tree on fire all day long. That's what he told a detective. This guy's also alleged to have gone to the Ghislaine Maxwell trial happening in New York City and exposing himself. That had happened, I guess, earlier in the week. So he's been very busy. 
But I guess in his brain, he was obsessing over burning down our Christmas tree. So then he did it. And he told the police, I was thinking about doing it all day. Then he did. He was arraigned on a few of these counts. And again, they reduced the number of counts against him. And quote, New York criminal justice reforms enacted in January of last year bar judges from setting bail on such charges. So this guy endangers people, burns down a Christmas tree. He did $500,000 worth of damage, half a million dollars worth of damage. If the tree had fallen in a different direction or if the fire hadn't been extinguished the way that it was, other things could have caught on fire. This could have very much put the health and safety and lives of people in danger. And the charges against the guy were so minimal and low that he didn't even qualify to have bail set. So within the day, within the day, he was just released back onto the streets in New York City. I saw a story, was it yesterday? A criminal in New York City had beaten someone. He was arrested and went to jail. He was then released on bail. When he was released, he went out and beat two random women in New York, was arrested again for the new examples and instances of assault, and then he was released again. I wonder what he might do next. And this is the other thing. If you have someone who is clearly unwell and disturbed, who tells the police that they were fixated on burning down a Christmas tree all day, and then they acted on it and, in fact, burned down the Christmas tree. Does that sound like someone who anyone should feel comfortable being just released back onto the street? There's not even any bail because of social justice and criminal justice. Look, I'm for criminal justice reform in some respects. I've been consistent on that. The bail reforms that are being enacted in some of these left-wing cities for purposes of equity, supposedly, are actively putting people in danger. I mean, let's not forget what happened in Waukesha, Wisconsin. That's not even a big city. It's a left-wing DA in that part of Wisconsin, in Milwaukee. The suspect who allegedly killed six people, including, what, a child? At that Christmas parade a few weeks ago, a story that is basically totally gone from the national news, He's a career criminal in and out of prison for 20 years. He had been released on low bail, having used his car as a weapon just days prior. They let him out, and then he murders six people driving his SUV through that Christmas parade. There's a problem here. And to me, if you have someone who's clearly a danger to himself and society, it is not progress it is not equity. It is not responsible governance to say, oh, this person should be released without even eligibility for bail. Does that make you feel any safer? The commissioner of the NYPD was talking about this phenomenon on one of the local stations in New York. Here's what he said in cut two. We're seeing a little bit of mental illness. We're seeing just disregard yeah. for common decency. But when you when you have mass amounts of people put back on the streets that have traditionally been 
uh, held in jail. You're seeing some of that permeate here as well. I mean, that that's just a fact. On the West Coast, you've got this guy, George Gascon, if I'm saying that name correctly, the DA in Los Angeles, left winger, very soft on crime. I mean, he's even gone to reduce charges on cold-blooded cop killers. That's how, quote-unquote, progressive he is. He's out there denying that crime is increasing. He said, no, it's a, it's a safer environment. It's more humane. It's more equitable. Then he was called out on all of these smash-and-grab looting robberies, and he said, well, actually, uh, we bear no responsibility. That was his response. Most crime is down. Really? Still? Does it feel, if you're out in California, does it feel like crime is down? Who believes this stuff? He did add, there's an exception, homicides. Oh, homicides are up. I mean, so are massive looting crimes that are on camera that we see virtually every day. Those crimes are up, sir. And there's like the little detail. Oh, yeah, and homicides are up, too. When lawlessness increases and is tolerated and is indulged, the most serious crimes also follow in many cases. In Philadelphia, there's a guy, Larry Krasner, who's their left-wing DA. He's denying a a spike in crime in Philadelphia. He says it's not true. There's also not a big spike in violent crime. Neither of those things is true. Basically, we don't have a crisis of lawlessness. We don't have a crisis of crime. We don't have a crisis of violence. That was his quote. This is the left-wing DA who's decriminalized a lot of crime in Philadelphia. Well, here's the thing. You can say there's no crisis of crime and violence, except your city just hit a new record of murders in a single year. It's the highest ever. Well over 500 people murdered in Philadelphia in one year, and you've got the left-wing DA saying, there's no crisis here. There's no rising violent crime. It's all a big lie. This is the gaslighting that we talk about. By the way, the former mayor in Philadelphia, Mayor Nutter, Democrat, African-American, he went hard after Krasner, saying sitting there and downplaying the crime crisis that he clearly sees is white privilege. So they're going after each other now on this stuff. It's just the denial of what's in front of people's faces that drives me crazy. In the Wall Street Journal today, there's an op-ed by Rafael Mangual. Headline, yes, the crime wave is as bad as you think. Progressive gaslight the public. So talking about exactly these types of people that I've been quoting here. Progressives gaslight the public by claiming things used to be worse. And he goes through and looks at the 80s and 90s and said, in some ways, it was worse back then. In other ways, the current situation is catching up. And by the way, we shouldn't be saying the crime plagued dark days of like the 80s and early 90s is the benchmark. Like, if we're not as bad across the country as we were back then, well, it's kind of sort of a win. But as this op-ed points out, the claim that crime isn't as bad as it was in the 90s is no longer true for a long list of American cities, many of which have either surpassed or are currently flirting with that decade's homicide tallies. Philadelphia, which I just mentioned, just shattered its all-time annual homicide record with a full month remaining in 2021. 
as have Louisville, Kentucky, Indianapolis, Columbus, Austin, Tucson, St. Paul, Portland, Albuquerque, Fayetteville. Other cities like Cincinnati, Trenton, New Jersey, Memphis, Milwaukee, Denver, Lansing, Michigan, saw their highest homicide tallies since 1990 within the last year. And the stats and the list goes on. And then you've got small business owners pleading for help from authorities. In fact, we will get into some of that as soon as we come back. I've got to take a break. I'm already late. It's the Guy Benson Show. Stay tuned. The Guy Benson Show. More next. The Will Cain Show is now dropping five episodes a week. Join Fox and Friends weekend host Will Cain as he tackles the latest headlines from his unique perspective, along with thought-provoking interviews with leading figures and live calls from viewers and listeners. Listen wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Fox Nation presents podcasts, Women of the Bible Speak. I'm Shannon Bream, host of Fox News at Night and author of the new book, Women of the Bible Speak, the wisdom of 16 women and their lessons for today. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, foxnewspodcast.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. I assume that just with the metal bar and the barrier that the police put up no one's gonna be coming in but he was wrong sure enough at midnight last night they came back you know it's one of the guys you can tell by the way he walks from the first video breaking back in and spending nearly two hours coming and going from the building at one point the man's mask falling down enough to get a good look at his face the thief cleaning out what was left of webb's remaining valuable product even taking some of his paintings it hurts because i you know um put everything we had in buying this building and applying for licensing, and it took nine months to just build this place out. It's hard watching it all, you know, disappear in the matter of minutes. It's the Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. That was a news report in Oakland, California. A small business in that city robbed twice in two nights. Back-to-back nights. And that guy's like, well, everything I've worked for and built towards is gone. When you decriminalize crime, crime happens. When you aren't serious about enforcing crime and punishing criminals, crime happens. I see that there's a group of CEOs from a retail group begging Congress to take some action on these types of actions, on these types of crimes. On the looting and the widespread criminal activity. The headline I saw, CEOs call on Congress to address surge of retail crime. What surge? Say all of these. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Left-wing DAs and their apologists. There's no, everything's fine. Every, it's all in your head. AOC said, this stuff hasn't panned out. That's their spin. Then there's reality. What are voters going to do about it? Mark Thiessen coming up next. 
From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The Untold Story with Martha McCallum. The host of the story on Fox News Channel sits down with major newsmakers each week to get their untold story. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Back here on The Guy Benson Show, GuyBensonShow.com, our website. Podcasts always free. By the way, one more thought on the crime. Since I mentioned Oakland, California, we played the soundbite of the small business owner, Rob, back-to-back nights, just cleaned out. I saw an essay today by someone who lives in Oakland, the Bay Area, just ground zero of left-wing nuttery. And this person wrote about how their nanny, their child's nanny, had her house sprayed with bullets the other day. And it was such a non-event that it didn't even make the local news. To make the local news in Oakland, you have to have like a former U.S. senator get mugged in broad daylight, which is what happened to Barbara Boxer. Or a former police officer, now a security guard, murdered in broad daylight, protecting a news crew from criminals and looters. While all these DAs and all these Democrats say, oh, there is no crime spike, you're making it up. Imagine having your house sprayed with just random gunfire and it's so normal that it's not even something that makes a blip locally with the media. I guess California officials are too busy planning to do abortion tourism. I don't know if you've heard about this. There's a proposal now in California and in New York that if Roe versus Wade is limited by the Supreme Court, they want to use taxpayer money of those states to pay for people to come to California, New York, all expense paid trip, so long as you're doing it to have an abortion. They'll pay for your flight. They'll pay for your hotel. I mean, it's disgusting. They tell us, oh, no one's pro-abortion. They're just pro-choice. There are some fanatically pro-abortion people. They want to have you pay for people to fly out to these states and have their abortion. They're also offering child care so they can... Watch your kids while you kill a new one. It's honestly, it's sick. That's what they're focused on in California while so much else in the state is going to hell. And this is what they voted for out there. Congratulations. Every horrible story out there, I'm like, you guys voted for this. Enjoy. That abortion thing. I don't want to get too much more into it. It's going to bother me too much. All right, let's get to our guest, Mark Thiessen. Columns at the Washington Post, Fox News contributor, fellow at AEI, and former presidential speechwriter, chief presidential speechwriter for George W. Bush. Mark, good to have you back on the show. Good to be with you, uh, Guy. What, what's going on with those New Jersey Devils jerseys? The ones that say Jersey on them? Yeah, because, I mean, people call New Jersey Jersey. I actually think I actually think they looked better on, on TV. That, well, no, the, the goalie's mask said mask on it. Which I thought was kind of funny, <laughs> and then really? we won. Oh, oh yeah, so it said funny. mask, and then and then they just posted the official Twitter feed. Just posted the word "win" in the exact same font. Like this is a win. Oh, tweet. that's so funny. Yeah, beat the Flyers three nothing last night. Which I'm I'm always very happy to see the Flyers lose, and yes, very happy I, well, to see the that, Devils that's win. That's something that we share. That's a, that's a, that's you, a, that is a, true because you're a Rangers fan. You know. I will point out I was watching a little bit of your game, the Rangers game last oh, night. It was on national television. Yeah. Uh, what happened in that game, Mark? 
Well, well, yeah, well second, first of all, number one, we are, second period. We are, we're one, we're one point out of being in first place in the entire NHL. So one bad game doesn't uh, spoil the whole bunch. Uh, yeah, That's we had true. our fourth string goalie. We had our fourth string goalie. We were in a back to back. Just a, uh, I think one of the uh, the Rangers commentators called it a scheduled loss. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that so, it was. I kept be, looking we'll up. It's like, they, they the Avalanche. The back. We can't, I the can't avalanche wait to play you guys again. in the playoffs if you, if you make it. We will. Well, no, I, I, we'll see. <laughs> I, I don't know if the Devils are a playoff contender yet, but uh, I do want to shift to foreign policy, sure. Mark, here, because there's this story that I saw from the AP about yeah. Ukraine. And here's the paragraph that just stopped me in my tracks – talking about uh, the Biden administration and their position here, which I think, you know, you can you can argue that it's been weak overall, that they've sent bad signals to the world about American weakness. You look at Afghanistan and, and other contributing factors. They've at least done some things and said some of the right things. You would think about Russia and what Russia appears to be poised to do. And then you've got this. Biden, this is from the Associated Press today, Biden, the president, spoke by phone Thursday so earlier today with the Ukrainian president, although no, no details were available immediately after their discussion, administration officials, this is the key point, administration yep. officials have suggested that the United States will press Ukraine to formally cede a measure of autonomy to eastern Ukrainian lands now controlled by Russia-backed separatists who rose up against Kiev in 2014. So if I'm understanding this correctly, Mark, Putin sends 175,000 troops to the border mm-hmm. and is setting the stage, it would appear, through his actions and various you know, movements and preparations to invade Ukraine. And the United States, while saying, oh, there'll be very serious ramifications if you do this and this will not be acceptable and you just wait for the sanctions and we're going to send defensive weapons to Ukraine and all that stuff, which is fine. I support all of that, if not more. But then they're telling Putin out of the other side of their mouth, well, just hold off. We might be able to convince Ukraine to just give you effectively some of their territory to make an invasion unnecessary, basically. And I know these comparisons get overblown and overused, Mark, but I do remember when a certain other leader, and I'm not comparing Putin with Hitler, but when you try to appease bad people with territory, yeah. historically it often doesn't end up terribly well. I'm sort of amazed that they are publicly putting on the table, with everything that Russia is doing, a Ukrainian appeasement surrender of territory. It's More territory. remarkable. I mean, have these people not heard of the Sudetenland? I mean, this right. is like he's, he's channeling his inner Neville Chamberlain. It's insane. I mean, look, there's gotta be, at some point there's got to be a diplomatic solution to what's going on in the Donbass region, but you don't do it at the point of a gun, and you don't reward Vladimir Putin uh, with concessions for, uh, for uh, doing it, for, uh, for massing troops on the border. Look, there's, there's, a, there's a model here for how you handle something like this. If you recall, in 2008, when I was in the White House, George W. Bush was president, um, the, Putin invaded the Republic of Georgia. And Here's what George W. Bush did when he was when he was, when he was threatening to march on Tbilisi and uh, and uh, and uh, take the capital and overthrow the government there. He, he in an echo of the 1948 Berlin airlift, he sent U.S. Navy and Coast Guard ships into the Black Sea, and he sent U.S. military aircraft to Tbilisi on a humanitarian aid mission. 
and had American planes flying into Tbilisi uh, with, 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 uh, with, with humanitarian aid and basically dared Vladimir Putin to come to Tbilisi while American troops were on the ground. And that was, it was a level of brinksmanship. It was like the Berlin airlift, where he basically said, we're, we're flying American troops. If you come to Tbilisi, guess what? There's going to be U.S. soldiers there, and you don't want to get into a situation where you're having to stand up with American forces. And Putin well, I think off. a lot of the American people don't want our troops necessarily in the middle of this, and Biden has ruled that out. I, I will note combat, that Jen Psaki – go ahead. No, but not, it wasn't. They, did, they weren't on a combat mission. They were on a humanitarian mission. They were right. they were bringing humanitarian aid to, to Tbilisi, but it was a subtle message to Putin that if you come to Tbilisi, there's going to be American troops there, and that was enough to to make him back off the thought of having that, uh, that conflict. Whereas Biden has completely taken use of our military off the table. We should be having flights going into into Kiev right now. There's no Russians near Kiev. We should be flying into Kiev with humanitarian aid, and quite frankly, with Javelin missiles and military aid. Sending yeah, that and, and sending that aid to them. Why are why are we not? Yeah. You know, the, the Biden administration said that if Putin invades, we will increase our military aid to Kiev. Well, what that what Putin hears is, so if I don't invade, you won't increase military aid to Kiev. That's a win for me. Like, why would you even put military aid on the table as a negotiating point? You should. We should just be arming the Ukrainians to the teeth so they can defend themselves. Why would we? Why would we even make that a, a point of negotiation? It's insane. I will note that Jen Psaki today, just minutes ago at the press briefing, denied that Biden was advising the Ukrainians to cede land. And yet the Associated Press reported it based on what officials at the White House told them. So I don't know exactly what to believe. I do know that it is shocking that you at least had AP sources. And, and I did not see the exact verbiage of the denial. So this could have been a slippery, qualified narrow denial, right, as opposed to a broad denial that anything like this is under consideration. I just it is very disturbing to me that Putin would be rewarded, right, with with effective territory or, you know, Russian separatists with anything. Right. Because it would it would send the message. And this is like basic, like human psychology. If you behave badly in pursuit of some sort of goal, and then you achieve at least some of that goal because people respond to your bad behavior and reward it, it is going to incentivize more of this in the future, right? You would say, okay, now I want something else. I'm feeling uh, a little, I don't know, restless here in Moscow, and maybe my my poll numbers aren't great at the moment. I got to do something to to whip up some nationalism. Why don't I go do another thing and get a new concession from the West and the United States, uh, and and it'll work because that's what worked for me last time. It just seems like a pretty backwards and very short sighted approach to all of this with mixed messages. Because again, not everything that the Biden team has been doing here is something that I oppose. I think some of what they've done and said is good. You can argue some of it is insufficient. Then you've got reports like this and other things that they're saying are off the table. And it's just sort of, uh, it's sort of a, a, a murky mess, Mark. It's it's a little clearer to me, I think. I, I appreciate you trying to give them credit. And they, they, the one thing I give them credit for is they, they have not, they've not, they have completely rejected Putin's demand that with that we guarantee that NATO, that Ukraine will never join NATO, which is yes. which is a good thing. But keep in mind, the, the lesson of history is that weakness is provocative. So when Putin, what happened when Putin 
uh, seized Crimea and annexed Crimea. It, that came just a few months after President Obama failed to enforce his red line in Syria, right? And the message to Putin was, this guy is weak. He's not going to impose any costs on me. He's not, afraid. He's not, not willing to pull the trigger on Syria. He's not going to do anything to me. And he came in and seized Crimea. So what, preci- what, what precipitated this crisis? Two Which things. was the right One, calculation from Putin, by the way, right? It was, he, by he the way, yes, the because right Obama, decision. he was right. Was Obama was, not, was weak and was not willing to pose any costs, and he didn't, and he got away with it, and he still has Crimea. So what precipitated this crisis? Two things. One, the disastrous withdrawal from Afghanistan, which sent a message of weakness across the world that not only is emboldened Russia, but emboldened China. I mean, if you, within weeks of that, they had sent the largest incursion of, of warplanes in the Taiwan's air defense zone in the history, right? Not, not a coincidence. And two, Biden's capitulation on the Nord Stream 2 pipeline between Russia and Germany, which is a mortal threat to Ukraine, because right now, natural, all of Russian natural gas going to Europe has to go through pipelines crossing Ukraine's territory. But if they build the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, they can circumvent Ukraine, and that means they can cut off Ukraine's natural gas supplies without uh, cutting off their lucrative markets in Western Europe. And so Biden capitulated and gave that to him because, uh, as a gift. So what Biden ought to be doing is, one, sending uh, weapons now, sending javelin missiles now. U.S. Air, military aircraft should be flying into Kiev to, to arm the Ukrainian satif with everything they've asked for, speed it up. And number two, he, rather, like your point, don't reward him. Not only don't reward him, punish him. Say, okay, because you've done this, you are losing the, the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. You have shown why we cannot allow you to to have this kind of ability. Well, we've to got take to convince Ukraine the Germans hostage. there too, and they're we kind don't need of to saying, convince well, the Germans. We need to tell the Germans, <laughs> just like Donald Trump did. But Donald Trump didn't didn't uh, told told Merkel what was going to happen. We imposed sanctions on them. Put sanctions on the on the pipeline company. Put sanctions on the on anyone who uses the natural gas from the pipeline. We could we have the power to stop it. Donald Trump yeah. stopped it cold. It started up again when Biden took office. Because they knew that he wasn't yeah. going to enforce the sanctions, and that would well, put because an and because they had basically Putin. green they greenlit it. Biden greenlit yeah. it. It's like it was like a exactly. it's like a, here's it's going to cost you nothing, Vlad. Uh, new president, new situation. Here's yeah. your pipeline. Uh, it's gonna it's gonna go through. And now they're saying, well, it's leveraged now because we can take it back away. I guess that's technically true, but you're right. Preemptively, you can start to impose some pain on Putin, like. Already what you've done is provocative, and there's a reaction. Yeah. And if you do anything more, it's going to get a lot more painful for you. And it makes it – and also the Germans – how can the Germans complain in the face of it? Because Putin has precipitated the crisis that caused Biden. I was going to let you do it, but it's just shown by Putin's action has just shown us how dangerous this is. Because imagine if he could cut off gas to, to, to Ukraine now, in addition to all the other points of leverage that he's using. Uh, we can't Mark allow Thiessen, this to go forward. I'm sorry. I want to get your reaction very quickly to this. I saw the story yesterday, and at first I was encouraged by it. Breaking news yesterday that the U.S. House, controlled by Democrats, passed legislation designed to punish China for its treatment of Uyghur Muslims in the country's Xinjiang province. So the Senate had passed this. Rubio's been pushing on this. The House then passed what I thought was this bill. But Josh Rogan from The Washington Post yep. clarified They only passed it in the House to say that they did something. This is a different bill. The House already passed it last year. There is no plan to reconcile it with the Senate bill from Rubio and Merkley, meaning it would become law. These are two different bills. 
This is just an alibi, he writes, unfortunately. The Biden administration has told Democrats not to send it to his desk. Quickly, Mark, your reaction. Josh is right. It's a Potemkin bill. Look, there's a bill passed in the Senate. This bill had already, as Josh said, been passed in the House. If you were serious, what you would do is you would is you would change your bill in the House to make it more like the Senate bill and then appoint conferees so that you could hammer out the differences and pass a or pass pass the Senate version. Um, they have no intention of putting anything on Biden's desk, but they don't want to be able to they don't with the Olympics coming up, the 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 genocide Olympics coming up in Beijing. They don't want to be in a position of having to having not done anything about the Uyghurs. That's all it all is. Right. It's so it's like a talking point. See, we voted for it, but it's not going to become law. We've heard that the That's State Department, uh, Wendy Sherman, John Kerry have both been lobbying against this becoming law for their own yeah. various reasons. And on we go to, as you call them, the genocide Olympics. It's it's pretty disgraceful. Mark Thiessen, columnist at the Washington Post, Fox News contributor. Well, we started on hockey and we ended on that note. Uh, so we'll have to have a more <laughs> cheerful conversation well, next we'll time. Mark, we're rooting pre- for the U.S. and the Olympics in, hockey, in Olympic hockey. One hundred percent. Go Team USA, Mark. Appreciate it. We'll be right back after this. Guy Benson will be right back. Get this and all your favorite Fox News podcasts ad-free on Apple Podcasts with Fox News Podcasts Plus. Just go to foxnewspodcasts.com for all the details. I'm Guy Benson, and we are back. In 1996, Senator Bob Dole was accepting the GOP nomination for president, and he talked about inclusivity. Let's listen to cut 14. The question of immigration is broader than that, and let me be specific. A family from Mexico arrives this morning legally, has as much right to the American dream as the direct descendants of the founding fathers. Republican Party is broad and inclusive. It represents the Republican Party is broad and inclusive. It represents many streams of opinion and many points of view. But if there's anyone who has mistakenly attached himself to our party in the belief that we are not open to citizens of every race and religion, then let me remind you, tonight this hall belongs to the party of Lincoln and the exits which are clearly marked are for you to walk out of as I stand this ground without compromise. A peon to legal immigration and against bigotry. Dole lying in state today at the Capitol. Rest in peace. Living the Bream is a podcast hosted by Fox News Channel's Shannon Bream, sharing inspirational stories, personal anecdotes, and an insider's perspective on actions and rulings from the high court. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Kai Benson Show. It's a new hour on The Guy Benson Show on this Thursday. Thank you for listening every weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern, or on demand around the clock for free on the podcast, GuyBensonShow.com, your resource for all of the above, GuyBensonShow.com. As we begin our middle hour, I'll bring you a Fox News alert on the Dow. 
the Dow closes exactly flat. Zeros. Closing at 35,754, which is how it closed yesterday. So after all that activity, no real change at all. We are approaching, what is it now, eight hours of deliberation in the Jussie Smollett trial. So yeah, an hour ago, our colleague Matt Finn, who's covering the trial in Chicago, tweeted that they were nearly at the seven-hour mark. It's been an hour, so they're getting close to eight hours of deliberations. I have some thoughts on that. I do want to read to you as we await the verdict from the jury just a few excerpts from a column at National Review by Kyle Smith. And his headline is Jussie Smollett, Funniest Trial Ever. And I have to agree on some level. I've enjoyed this story so much because it is so cartoonishly stupid, everything that he's done. I mean, he's clearly a moron. I can't laugh too, too hard because it's still really vile what he, meaning Jussie Smollett, did. All right, he decided that he was not famous enough. He was not rich enough. He wasn't getting enough attention. So he paid some people to stage a fake hate crime, which he instructed them how to make it appear both racist and homophobic, while, of course, injecting a a political angle as well. He did this all strategically. What a disgusting betrayal of both the black and gay communities. What a horrible thing to do when there still is hate in the world, where hate crimes, real ones, exist, to invent one for your own glorification. And it's not just spitting on people who are actual victims of hate crimes. It's also smearing people who you disagree with politically while you're at it. I mean, it was extremely poorly executed to the point that it was kind of hilarious, but it was really, really terrible what he did. I mean, he's a bad person on top of the incompetence. And now, of course, he's dragging his co-conspirators through the mud trying to pretend that they're, you know, hardened genius criminals once his entire ill-conceived plot just collapsed all around him. And by the way, Chicago is a city, as you know, that has struggled with crime for a long time. The police have better things to be doing than investigating a phantom, a fake hate crime that you visited deliberately upon yourself, and yet Thousands of hours of police investigation was wasted on this. You think about the opportunity cost there as well. And he got that kind of attention because of his celebrity. So I'm all for making every joke that you can think of about Jesse Smollett. He deserves it. And we played you some of the Chappelle stuff, which was fantastic. And I agree that the spectacle has been playing out in the courtroom is on a major level quite funny where we collectively are laughing at Jussie Smollett. But I don't want to lose sight of the fact of what he did, the underlying act, the motivations behind it, all of it is really gross. 
And we mentioned yesterday how the official Black Lives Matter organization, which I distinguish from the movement or the proposition or the slogan Black Lives Matter, right? The idea behind that I believe is different and separate and apart from the organization, capital BLM, radicals, defund the police radicals. Well, we put out a statement. We read it yesterday on the air. Their statement was because they want to abolish the police, they can never believe the police. And because Jesse Smollett is black, they believe him because he's in their community and we've got our back. Which is just like a straight up admission of having no interest in facts and viewing your entire world through the prism of abject tribalism with nothing else. Which is... I think a very perverted way to go about life. It's also very sort of childish. I was like, oh, well, we're with him because of his skin color and we hate these people over here. So it doesn't matter what the facts are. We believe him and not them because they're the police and they should be abolished. And he has a skin color and we have that skin color. So we believe him. You add that on top of all their other crazy radical stuff. I don't know why anyone would want to associate with that organization. Although, if you want to, by all means, it's a free country. It's not a systemically racist country, but it's a free country. One question that came to mind, though, and a few people made this point on social media, based on that BLM announcement, basically endorsing Smollett, where they're almost coming out and saying, we don't really believe him, but we're going to say we believe him because of his identity and because we hate the police. The question raised by a few observers, fair one, is, okay, the two brothers that have been smeared by Smollett, the co-conspirators that he paid to beat him up, although not really. Don't hit me too hard. That was part of his uh, instructions. They did a walkthrough, a dry run the day before. Right? They drove past the intersection. Here's where you're going to go. There's text messages. There's Instagram messages. Those brothers are Nigerian. They're black. They have, as the race obsessives like to say, black and brown bodies. They testified about what Smollett paid them to do. Does capital BLM, the organization, not believe those black people? And if so, why? Why is the word, the hilariously not credible word, of Jussie Smollett, a black person, why is that to be believed over the word of two black people who've testified exactly the opposite and have all the other evidence on their side? Is there an explanation for that, or is it just that Jussie Smollett is somewhat prominent and rich, and so he's sort of a more glorified member of the tribe that BLM purports to speak on behalf of? I don't quite understand how that all works out. People were also making the joke black lies matter in attaching that to Jussie Smollett because the two brothers that he's accusing of actually attacking, the whole story makes no sense. But their lives, their word, their involvement, their testimony, all should matter, you would think, but okay, it's just a radical political organization. There's, there's no point in trying to divine some sort of a principle. There is none. They're very open about the lack of principle, as a matter of fact. 
So that's all a wind-up to this column at National Review that I've been promising you. I just want to read some of it because Kyle can be a very funny writer. And he really lays out how absurd the Smollett defense is and has been at trial. So he writes this, Spare a thought for Jesse Smollett's lawyers. Think of them much like infantrymen who walk through fire on the way to glory, except they've been slogging through a mire of BS on their way to absurdity. Their field commander is an insistently moronic fraud. The flag they struggle to raise is the reputation of a dim actor who thought he would raise his profile by telling the world that he was attacked by the world's least likely lynch mob, a duo of black MAGA heads who just happened to have bleach and a noose on them just in case Jussie Smollett should walk by at 2 o'clock in the morning on an exceptionally cold Chicago night, then walked away after 30 seconds without robbing their victim or doing him more than superficial harm. I mean, that fact pattern already, right? Ridiculous. Smith writes, as for the Smollett pals testifying against him, they produced a $3,500 check Jussie had written them as advance payment because the ringmaster of this flea circus was too dumb to understand that cash is the preferred payment method when doing stuff you don't want others to find out about. He wrote them a personal check. Smollett's lawyer's explanation was that was uh, merely for nutritional tips. The supposed nutritional advisory siblings said no one had ever paid them more than $100 for such advice before. So their going rate for nutritional tips was 100 bucks. They got 3500 bucks in a personal check from Jussie Smollett. What a mystery. Another thing you really ought not do with co-conspirators who are going to be posing as your attackers is exchange conspiratorial-sounding text messages with them, such as the one Smollett sent to Amibola Osendaro a few days before the attack. Quote, might need your help on the low. Prosecutors showed that the brothers took a rideshare service and a taxi to the location of the scene of the fake attack, but got there early. Surveillance video shows them waiting patiently on a bench for their fellow play actor to appear. Using Instagram, Smollett advised the brothers that the attack, originally planned for 10 p.m., would have to be put off a few hours because his flight out of LaGuardia would be delayed. (laughs) It is okay to laugh. It is okay to laugh. Also, Smith writes, framing the attack as an episode of homophobia opens up more questions that Smollett can't answer. If the brothers were looking to attack a random gay person and had an irrepressible 2 a.m. urge to do so, why didn't they just go to the gay neighborhood where one of them had worked? That's Boys Town up on the north side. And why stay up till 2 a.m. on a bitterly cold night, hoping that a gay black fellow might come strolling along? And if they specifically and only hated Smollett, how could they have been so confident that Smollett was going to come walking into their path? And so uh, convinced of this that they prepared in advance by carrying a noose and filling a hot sauce bottle with bleach. The answer, of course, is that there are no explanations for any of that beyond that Jussie Smollett coordinated this with them, orchestrated it, choreographed it, and paid them to do it, which is what all of the evidence shows.
The excuse, by the way, was they knew he was going to be out there at that time because they told him to go buy four eggs for his nutritional well-being, right? There's that $3,500 advice. Go buy some some eggs, some four eggs at a 2 o'clock in the morning. Go do it right now. We've got a 9.30 a.m. workout session planned, says Smollett, a plan that never happened and was never canceled mysteriously. I mean, it's just I mean, it's so obvious what happened here. I mention all of this because, as I said at the top of the hour, we are now nearly eight hours into deliberations from the jury. I don't know what is typically expected when it comes to a time frame for jury deliberations on this sort of thing. But the evidence was so overwhelmingly clear. The longer this thing drags out, the longer you start to wonder if there might be, for example, a hung jury. All it takes is one. All Smollett and his lawyers have to do is have one fellow moron or someone who's super woke or just wants to go with the identity tribal politics thing. One holdout could be a mistrial. I'm not saying that's going to happen. I just think given the clarity of the evidence, every hour that passes, I start to think, ooh, what's taking them so long to reach the obvious conclusion here and – I saw one of the law professors who's on TV a lot, Jonathan Turley. His theory was the defense attorneys were going specifically for jury nullification, basically saying, wink, wink, we kind of know this is all ridiculous. You know he's guilty. We know he's guilty. But let's stick it to the system and the police anyway. And let's get a not guilty verdict. And all they had to do was convince one person of that. Then it's back to square one if there's a mistrial. Then they would hope that the state wouldn't want to go through the expense and the whole hullabaloo of another trial. That was the strategy. We'll see soon, we think, whether it works. But for now, we wait. And we'll be right back on The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. It's the Hammer Time Podcast. Fox News Channel's Bill Hammer takes you one-on-one with engaging personalities covering the critical issues of the day. Find Hammer Time now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. I'm Guy Benson, back on the show here. Just a quick update. Matt Finn tweeting moments ago that the jury has now hit eight hours of deliberations and they have ordered dinner. So they might not be done just yet, sounds like. Keep an eye on that. Meanwhile, Hillary Clinton has now been hired to do a master class. People can sign up and get a master class under the tutelage of Hillary Rodham Clinton. I don't know what exactly the master class is in or what it's for, what she's teaching. Maybe she's doing a master class on information security, how to wipe a private email server like with a cloth, how to find Wisconsin on a map. It's a new skill that she's acquired recently, apparently. How to lose a presidential election to someone with personal favorability in the 30s. That takes real skill. It takes a master to lose that election. She did it. You can come study at her knee. She can bestow upon you how to do these things. How to become less popular after losing a presidential election. That almost never happens. Usually there's some sense from the other side, oh, you're no longer a threat, and there's some sort of warm and fuzzies, oh, you concede gracefully, 
graciously and your numbers go up. Not her. What's her secret? Maybe she'll tell us in the master, the master class. How to drink Chardonnay alone in the woods. She's co-teaching that one with Cookie. How to lie to grieving families right to their faces after a terrorist attack. And that, that takes real skill. It takes resolve to know that you're lying to these people about how their loved ones die to do it anyway. Thinking of Benghazi, of course. How to dodge sniper fire with those corkscrew landings. Remember that one? The mind reels. There are so many opportunities of wisdom that she might impart upon the American people in this master class if people want to sign up and, I guess, pay money. Meanwhile, she was on NBC News reading from her victory speech in 2016 that she was never able to give. <laughs> Here's part of it, cut 10. I've met little boys and girls who didn't understand why a woman has never been president before. Now they know, and the world knows, that in America, every boy and every girl can grow up to be whatever they dream, even president of the United States. And as hard as it might be to imagine, your daughter will grow up and become the president of the United States. I am as sure of this as anything I have ever known. Together, we will make America even greater than it has ever been. But you want to talk about making America great again? In her speech with the crying? Only conservatives were going to love this. New from the Fox News Podcasts Network. My name is Kennedy, and welcome to my podcast, which will, I humbly say, single-handedly save the world. You're welcome. It's Kennedy Saves the World. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Back on the Guy Benson Show. Thank you for listening. So yesterday, I opened the show on education. And we focused primarily on this controversy out in Los Angeles where apparently a school was vaccinating kids without the consent or even knowledge of their parents. In one case, at least, bribing a student with pizza and asking him not to tell his parents that this happened. And because we talked a lot about that story, understandably, I gave a bit of a squeeze to the next topic related that I wanted to linger on a bit longer. And because I did not, I don't think, really do it justice, I want to come back to it today because there's a lot to get to. It's a New York Times story. And again, I referenced it yesterday. I read just a tiny bit from it, but left out so much key stuff. The headline, schools are closing classrooms on Fridays. Parents are furious. And before I get into this, let me just remind you that not long ago, Just about a month ago, we saw elections in New Jersey and, of course, Virginia. There was a big fight over education and schools, particularly in Virginia, where schools were kept shuttered for a very long time during the pandemic while they were open many other places and thriving. Not in Virginia. In fact, in some of these blue suburban areas outside of D.C., teachers unions insisted that they cut to near the front of the line on vaccines And then that still wasn't good enough to reopen schools in a timely manner. 
And so while a lot of the attention was on critical race theory, racial curricula, et cetera, a key underlying issue on education was school closures. And we have now heard several different accounts since the election with polling and focus groups that school closures was absolutely crucial to creating a baseline of discontent among many parents and suburban voters. Yes, there were flare-ups and flashpoints on other stuff, as I mentioned, CRT, the scandal in Loudoun County. But what a lot of people were just most angry about was that Democrats and the teachers' unions kept the schools closed for as long as they did and didn't seem to really care. And now here we are, about to turn the calendar to 2022, and you've got school districts across the country, more of them. This is a growing trend. Finding new reasons, new excuses to close schools more often. And as I alluded to yesterday, because we only talked about this for about a minute and a half. What some of the union bosses would like to do is blame it on you. So let me read from the Times story. Caitlin Reynolds, single mother, was happy that her son LJ was finally settled into fourth grade after a rocky experience last year with remote learning. I would add remote learning, virtual learning, a disaster for millions of kids. Deeply harmful. So this fourth grader is back in the classroom. The mother's relieved. Then on Wednesday, the 17th of November, an announcement. Detroit public schools would close their classrooms every Friday in December. There would be a virtual school only every Friday in December. Surprise, surprise, parents. As I also pointed out yesterday, the superintendent of Detroit Public Schools is on tape boasting of how much they embed critical race theory into their curriculum in social studies and across other disciplines. His word, embedded. And he didn't use a term like equity as a euphemism. He specifically and explicitly said critical race theory. Anyway, the schools in Detroit told all the parents, well, we're going to do remote learning again every Friday this month. A follow-up announcement came on Friday. School was also closed starting that Monday for the entire week of Thanksgiving. This time, there would be no online option. Quote, you need to take the kids back out again, Ms. Reynolds said. How's that not going to be harmful to these students? Answer, it was going to be harmful to the students. I guess the Detroit public schools didn't care. Virtual learning bad enough. Then they were canceling other classes with no online option. Just like eh, there's just a new vacation. A few months of relative calm have passed. And now public schools are going remote or canceling classes entirely for a day a week or even for a couple of weeks because of teacher burnout or staff shortages. I wonder what might be fueling staff shortages, by the way, with all sorts of mandates and other economic issues. At least six other school districts in Michigan extended Thanksgiving break, and three districts in Washington State, including Seattle, unexpectedly closed on November 12th, the day after Veterans Day. In one instance, Brevard Public Schools in Florida used leftover hurricane days to close schools for the entire week of Thanksgiving. They're finding ways to close classrooms. 
after locking so many of these kids out of classrooms for more than a year. The Times goes on to describe other examples across the country, writing a few of these districts have closed with very little notice, sending parents to find childcare, as well as to summon the wherewithal to supervise remote learning. Beyond the logistics, many parents are worried that with additional lost days of in-person school, their children will fall further behind. Yes, they should be worried about that. I wish we could print out this entire New York Times story and put it on a billboard on behalf of school choice or homeschooling. The government is falling flat on its face when it comes to educating your children, and it's getting worse. Districts cited various reasons for the temporary closings, from a rise in COVID-19 cases to a need to thoroughly sanitize classrooms, which, as we've established, is just BS nonsense. There's no need to sanitize classrooms when it comes to COVID. That is pure anti-science COVID theater made up. It costs money and gives an excuse to shut classrooms down. That's it. It does not protect anybody against COVID. We've known that now for over a year. It's airborne. It's not sitting on some desk or in a locker. But for many schools, the Times reports, the remote learning days, an option that did not exist before the pandemic, are a last-ditch effort to keep teachers from resigning. They are burned out, educators said, after a year of trying to help students through learning loss. Well, gosh, whose fault was that? Who's responsible for the learning loss? Would it be the school closures and the union bosses pushing them and the Democratic Party backing them up at every turn? They're acting like, oh, my gosh, this horrible situation has just befallen our children. I understand closing down schools in the very early days. We had no idea what was happening. There was this scary pandemic. There were many things that we did not know. But for the 2020 calendar year, right, back after the holidays, there was no excuse to keep schools closed. In many places, didn't. Schools were open in Europe. In the U.K., many of them without masks, doing great. Across the country, private schools, various areas and states. Florida was open. No incidents or very rare incidents of COVID being spread in schools. And a lot of these people stubbornly, steadfastly insisted on maintaining the harm to kids and keeping the classrooms closed. Meanwhile, they're renaming schools, they're reimagining curricula, they're focused on critical race theory. They're not focused on teaching kids in classrooms. And even as you got more and more data, I mean, common sense would be enough. Having kids sitting at home, trying to learn online, supervised or not supervised, that's not going to work as well. You don't need a bunch of studies for that. But then we had a bunch of studies for that. You had teachers begging to go back into the classroom. And as the data came in, these people still were pushing back. There were schools that did not want to open full time for the new academic year starting this past fall. Months and months and months and months into this. The temporary closures, back to the time story, may hamper relationships with parents at a moment when tensions in many districts are already high. Yeah. We're seeing enrollment plummeting in these places including in Virginia. We brought you those stats earlier in the week. Because of school cancellations last academic year, Ms. Reynolds, this is the mother from the beginning, who works at a University of Michigan research lab, 
had already run out of paid time off. Her mother was able to watch her fourth grade son last Friday, but now she's trying to make sure someone else can be home with him every Friday this month or lose hundreds of dollars from her paycheck, which families can, of course, ill afford to lose right now because the cost of everything is going up due to inflation. So you've got these school districts saying, oh, our teachers are burned out. They need this for their mental health. It's been so hard on them. Excuse me. Many of them did not show up into classrooms for the better part of a year. Where a bunch of essential employees across many other industries had to show up and clock in day in and day out, mid-pandemic, pre-vaccines to keep the country going. And look, I went to public schools. I treasured my education. I have dear friends and family members who are public school teachers. But public school teachers get more time off than almost any other area of our workforce in America. They get the long weekends. They get Thanksgiving break, Christmas break, two months over the summer, spring break, February break in a lot of cases. All the various holidays here or there. Look, I know these have been very trying circumstances. I know it has not been easy for anyone, but the idea that it has been uniquely hard on teachers and that teachers are the ones who are uniquely burned out over the last two years, give me a break. It's insulting. And now they're saying to these parents, working parents, trying to keep their families afloat, paying the mortgage, paying for gas and food and everything else going up, up, up. Now you're going to have to deal with more child care. Sometimes with almost no notice. Good luck with that. Maybe you take some time off. It has to be unpaid time off. So you have less money to buy things as they cost more and more. And then there are some examples that they give out of Oregon. Wait till you hear these. We will get to that and more from this New York Times piece as soon as we come back. It's The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, publisher of The Federalist, and I'm inviting you to join a new conversation with the smartest thinkers out there about the country and where we're going. Subscribe to the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. We are back. It's the Guy Benson Show walking through this New York Times piece about school closures. And there was, as I teased before the break, an example or two out of Oregon where there were some school fights and disruptions. So in Portland, or just east of Portland, the school canceled classes from November 18th until December 7th. Just canceled classes for weeks because of behavioral issues. They gave parents two days notice. We've had behavioral issues. We're going to close classes, close schools for a couple of weeks. Good luck. Are you kidding me? Asked Missy Kisselman, the mother of Sophia, an eighth grader there. I mean, are you kidding me? That's her quote. Sadly, she was not being kidded. Ms. Kisselman, who is working out of her living room as a county case manager, said it was, quote, nearly impossible for her to help her daughter, who has attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, with her schoolwork. She needs to be in classrooms. But schools were closed for a couple of weeks. Two days notice. That was out in Oregon. In Portland proper, the teachers union is proposing early release days for some schools after the return from winter break. They're just trying to find reasons to not teach in the classroom as much as possible. 
Elizabeth Teal, president of the Portland Association of Teachers, says her union has received an alarming number of inquiries from teachers asking for help resigning. So they're panicking. These teachers are burnt out. They've had it so hard. So they might walk away from the whole system, walk away from the profession. And their solution is let's give them more time off. Let's harm the kids more because we can't have these teachers resign. By the way, mandate, 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 vaccine mandate, all this stuff. We're going to keep that in place, of course, for science. It seems like the kids always end up getting the short end of all of this, right? There's a problem, and the solution almost unswervingly impacts negatively children. Outside of Detroit, a school district alerted parents October 31st, a Sunday, that it would go remote that Friday, and then every Friday until February. Christina Morgan, whose daughter is an eighth grader at University Middle School, said she found out about this news on social media. She's a single mother. She works for the county. Ms. Morgan now spends the beginning of every week asking family members to watch her daughter. If she cannot find anyone, she takes the day off from work, which she says reflects poorly on her at the office and makes her feel like a burden to her family. We have taxpayers paying for these government schools. And the people running the government schools seem intent on closing the government schools as much as they can. They got a nice taste of it, of not really working very much during the pandemic. They milked that in many cases for as long as they possibly could with moving goalposts and escalating demands. And now with even kids getting vaccinated in many cases, they're like, well, let's find new reasons, burnout, mental health. Research shows that disruptions during the pandemic led to students falling behind in math and reading. And students who were most affected by the crisis were already behind. This is a disaster educationally, a disaster. And as I alluded to very briefly yesterday, there's a quote near the beginning of the piece that I skipped over because I wanted to end with it. They quote, wait for it, of course, Randy Weingarten, who tweeted this story, by the way. She tweeted about this New York Times story saying this is the hardest year we've ever faced. Why is that, Randy? It's not just because of COVID. It's because of you. She says the challenges for educators are enormous. And what you hear from teachers is it's been too much. And in the New York Times story, she says that battles over the classroom, mask mandates and critical race theory have taken a toll. So Randy Weingarten is asked about these closures And about parents being angry, they're like, well, let's think about that. This is Weingarten's message again for parents. Screw you. You've bothered us about masks, even though there's not good science supporting masking in classrooms for kids. That's reality. That's data from here in the United States and abroad. Critical race theory, we don't like kids being indoctrinated racially. That's been an unpleasant thing to have to talk to these awful parents about. So really the fault lies with you. We close your schools. We made it harder on your kids. We're going to continue to close schools for all sorts of different reasons. And when you want to know why and you're upset, maybe look at yourself and some of the other things that you've objected to, making things just so difficult and traumatic for us, the teachers union. They are telling us loud and clear who they are, these union bosses. Randy Weingarten, who has no kids of her own, by the way, front and center, who believes that she is in charge of your kids, not you. And if it means harming your kids through all of this nonsense, 
She's willing to do it because she's about adults and the union, not about the kids. And if you got a problem with that, it's your fault. An extremely valuable and telling story, I give them credit in this case, from the New York Times. Schools closing classrooms on Fridays. Parents are furious. Wake up, parents. There's a solution to this. Choice. These people desperately need competition. They cannot have a monopoly on your kids. And people trying to stick you in these systems with no other options must be defeated because their interests are not aligned with yours or your children. That is clearer than ever. It's the Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The One with Craig Gutfeld, the co-host of The Five, like you've never heard him before. You know him, you love him, you want to be like him. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. Time now for the happy hour on the Guy Benson Show. It is Thursday. Glad to have you along every weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. That's when we air. GuyBensonShow.com for all the ways to listen live. And if you can't listen as we air, there's a podcast for that. We know many of you like the podcast. It is free. It is on demand every day. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com as well for the podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. And the happy hour sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which is so good. You can check it out for yourself. I hear from you guys all the time, and I love that. TheLongDrink.com is their website. You can discover where it's sold near you. You can order online. TheLongDrink.com. Always drink responsibly, of course. 21 plus only. Please and thank you. Joining us now from La Jolla, Texas, is Bill Malugin. National correspondent for Fox News. And, Bill, it's good to have you back on the show. Hey, Guy. Glad to be with you. Thanks, man. I wanted to touch base with you because I really do feel like the border crisis is in many ways unabated. It continues to rage. And yet most of the national media only pays some attention to it on occasion, like when there is some particularly acute flare up, for example, all those Haitian nationals under that bridge and then the made up controversy about the the whipping that wasn't. Yeah. I, I haven't <laughs> seen any results of that investigation, by the way, when our Border Patrol guys were smeared, including by the president. But occasionally the news media will descend upon a story for a day or two. In that case that I just referenced, they turn it into an attack on law enforcement and then they head for the hills. You cover this story consistently. I think the average person at home might say, well, if we're not hearing about it, maybe things are getting better. Maybe it's less of a problem. Is that the case? What are you seeing in your reporting? It's absolutely not the case, and it's not slowing down at all. Uh, For instance, uh, Rio Grande Valley sector, where we are right now, when you talk about the start of the fiscal year, which would be October 1st, um, they're up 165% over the same time last year. Del Rio, about five hours away from us, that sector, 
they're up 235% from last year. So the, both sectors are getting hit incredibly hard. Just on Monday of this week, uh, there were nearly 2,000 people apprehended in a 24-hour period. Um, you may not see 15,000 Haitians crammed under a bridge like we did back in September anymore, but uh, they're, they're coming in all over the border here in the Rio Grande Valley. It's a huge area. It's not slowing down at all. And the administration says they're re-implementing Remain in Mexico. Well, they got to put a huge asterisk next to that because it's just flat out. <laughs> it, they're doing it. They rolled it out in El Paso in one spot so far, and they've sent 30 people back. That's it. That's it. I mean, that's, le- that's less than a drop in the bucket. Um, the administration, we, we know they don't want to re-implement Remain in Mexico. They disagree with it. They're only doing it because the court is forcing them to. But um, from what we're seeing, it's just deliberately being slow walk. I mean, they're not doing it here in the Rio Grande Valley or in Del Rio, the two busiest sectors. So it's having zero impact whatsoever. There's zero deterrence. And every single day we're out here, there are hundreds upon hundreds just showing up right here where we are in La Jolla. And that doesn't even account for the ones that they don't catch or they don't see. I saw some video from my colleague at townhall.com, Julio Rosas, and I know that you amplified it as well. He's been following this story in Arizona, Yuma sector out there. And there was this video of a lot of illegal immigrants who I guess got tired of waiting to be apprehended. So they just walked to the Border Patrol office kind of to turn themselves in because there are a lot of people who come here illegally right now who believe – correctly, I would say, that the incentive is to be caught, is to be encountered, to be processed and perhaps released en masse into the country because that's been happening quite a bit and they feel like they can stay. So they actually want to get apprehended. There are also people who do not want to get apprehended. And this is one of, I think, the undertold stories of this crisis. If you have our personnel and our resources overwhelmed with the huge crush of people who want to get caught, hoping to be released into the country for at least some period of time, if not permanently, then there are fewer resources to patrol elsewhere. And traffickers and cartels take advantage of that. They choreograph this in some cases. And you've got lots and lots of known gotaways and some unknown number of unknown gotaways, people crossing the border illegally and just slipping into the country. And I would imagine disproportionately some of the people who would be the scariest the most important to keep out public safety threats for example they would be in that category people who are trying to avoid detection right 100 percent, 100 percent. you're exactly right the family units that we always see like the moms and dads with their little kids they they will come up to us and ask us you know donde esta la migra Where, where's immigration where's border patrol they are looking for border patrol to turn themselves into because they know under Joe Biden's policies, um, they've got a really good chance of being released into the interior of the country with a court date, maybe two, three, four, five years down the row. Why do they think that? Because the administration has already released several hundred thousand people into the country. They've openly admitted that. Um, the, the big question mark here are the ones they don't see, they don't find the runners, the gotaways. There's, there are known gotaways and there are unknown gotaways. What's a known gotaway? A known gotaway is someone maybe they see on a camera or they trigger a sensor or something like that. They know those people are there. They can see them. They just don't have the manpower to get to them. An unknown gotaway are people who slip through where they just don't have any resources. And it's impossible to know how many of those people are. But what's really concerning about the Yuma situation is they are so overwhelmed down there, as you mentioned. Um, these immigrants are just literally walking into the United States and looking for Border Patrol saying, like, where are they? We'd like to turn ourselves in. They're 
nowhere to be found. It's so insane. they're just walking. They're walking through the city of Yuma, going into McDonald's and looking for border patrol. Well, what if it's not a family unit looking to turn themselves in? What if it's somebody with sinister intentions? What if it's a felon? What if it's a gang member? There's no resistance. So when you hear people talking about open borders, I mean, what's more of an open border than that? Walking in without any resistance whatsoever. And you get, I mean, if people were to wa- have walked into Yuma last night uh, with those family units, if they don't want to be caught, they're not going to be caught. They, they could be anywhere by now. No, I mean, obviously, it's absolutely shocking and amazing to hear you just say these words out loud, even though we've seen the video. You're down there. You're seeing it every day. And the other thing is, just not to go off on too much of a tangent, but we are having this big discussion right now about the testing regime and vaccine proof and all this stuff that you need, let's say, to fly back into the United States, even as a citizen. you got to test here. you got to test there. There's all these rules in place from the administration for U.S. citizens traveling back legally to their own home country. And there's just not only no testing in this Yuma situation and a lot of other places along the border, it's just like folks walking right in in the middle of a pandemic. And you can say, well, that's different, which is Fauci's argument. It's different because it's politically sensitive, but it's not different from an epidemiological standpoint. If we're trying to control the spread and test people entering our sovereign territory, during the pandemic, none of that is happening. I mean, there's no resistance whatsoever. You just have foreign nationals walking across the border into Arizona cities and neighborhoods and businesses. It is absolutely nuts. And our colleague, Bill Griff Jenkins, tweeted this the other day, earlier this week. Here's his quote. In the last week, Border Patrol agents in one sector arrested two MS-13 gang members and a Guatemalan migrant previously convicted of murder in New Jersey in 2009. So far, more than 300 criminal migrants and gang members have been apprehended in that sector since October 1st, this fiscal year. My point here, Bill, is not to say that illegal immigrants are extremely dangerous and threats to public safety and they're a bunch of criminals. I think that's an unfair way of framing it. But if you have tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people crossing the border illegally every month. Some of them are going to be very bad, dangerous people. And I don't know how that's acceptable. Yeah, and you're right. It's just basic statistics, right? If 100,000 people come across, the number of criminals, felons, gang members, cartel members is not going to be zero, right? (laughs) It's it's just simple math. And just to add to to your point right there, Border Patrol just reported here in Rio Grande Valley just this week alone, they got four MS-13 gang members as well as a guerrilla from FARC, from Colombia. You know, the revolutionary guerrilla group FARC? Yeah. Uh, Well, they they just got delisted. They just got delisted as a terrorist group by the Biden administration, so that's convenient. But it's a terrorist organization, and one of their members was caught at the border in the sector that you're in right now, right? Correct. Yeah. Rio Grande Valley. So and we get these updates from Border Patrol multiple times a week. They're constantly, constantly catching cartel members, gang members, MS-13, you name it. They're down here. Um, and um, those are and a bunch of them aren't the getting caught. That's correct. Um, a bu- those are typically the guys we see dressed in camo or all black running through the bushes in the middle of the night, making sure they don't get apprehended. And they use the family units to their advantage. I, I think I've discussed this with you before, but what, what the yep. cartels do is. They send all the family units across. They wait for Border Patrol units to get sucked up to deal with all the paperwork. That leaves other parts of the border exposed and open. Then they send their uh, their other clientele through, if that's what you want to call them. Mm-hmm. Last point, Bill Malugin, and you were tweeting about this as well. 
And it just caught my attention again because what we hear from the Biden administration, from the DHS secretary, from the president, of course, from the vice president as well. And one of the Central American leaders just gave an interview to John Roberts this week where he said he has had zero meetings on immigration with anyone from the Biden administration since the vice president, which was months and months ago. So they say that they're all over this and they're they're working hard to stem the tide. And here is a key leader from the region saying he's heard basically crickets from the Biden administration. But one of their buzzwords, one of their talking points is root causes. We have to attack the root causes on the ground in some of these countries, a handful of countries, because then we can disincentivize people from wanting to leave their home country. I think that that is quixotic. I think that is extremely naive. And part of the reason that I think it's naive, Bill, is what you reported just one sector where you've been talking to Border Patrol agents in terms of people who have been apprehended since October 1st. You said the number of countries represented is in the ballpark of 50. Is that right? Yeah, that's absolutely correct. Just for instance, um, Del Rio sector just reported this last weekend. They picked up more than 3,500 illegal immigrants from, I believe it was 37 or 39 different countries. And since the beginning of this crisis, um, with all sectors, they've picked up migrants from 120 different countries around the world. Meanwhile, the Biden administration's strategy is they're sending VP Harris down to deal with the root causes in three countries, the Northern Triangle countries, Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador. That's three countries. What does that have to do with people coming in from West Africa, Uzbekistan, Haiti, all these other different countries that Syria. have nothing to do with it? Yemen. Then, yeah, Syria. Right. Then, then, you, then you have the Guatemalan president yesterday, as you mentioned, saying he hasn't even heard from Kamala Harris in six months. So, you know, it begs the question, where, where is all the root, root uh, you know, wh- where's all the work on these so-called root causes actually happening? So, Bill, you're in La Jolla, Texas. You're heading elsewhere today. What's next on the agenda as you cover the crisis that it seems like, as I mentioned at the top, so many of our colleagues elsewhere in the press aren't terribly interested in covering? So we're going to be heading to Eagle Pass for the weekend. Eagle Pass is in Del Rio sector, the second busiest sector. The reason why we are going up there is we're going to embed with uh, Texas DPS's special ops units. In the middle of the night, we're going to go out with them and work the private ranches. What's happening in the Del Rio sector is in areas where there's no border patrol whatsoever, runners will come across people's private ranches and farms in the middle of the night. These, these are the bad dudes. These are the ones in camo, all black, all single adult men, all trying to get away. They'll come across people's ranches in the middle of the night in an effort to get further into Texas. And Texas DPS are the only ones out there patrolling that area. So we're going to embed with them and uh, see what we can see what we can find out there for the next few days. You know, Texas authorities trying to pick up the slack because the federal authorities can only do so much and they're totally overtaxed, totally overwhelmed, totally overburdened, and they're not getting help from Washington. In fact, they're getting smeared from Washington, D.C. and the Biden administration. It's just an incredibly frustrating thing to watch. And we're glad you're down there documenting it. Bill Malugin, stay safe, our national correspondent at Fox News. We appreciate you taking some time with us today. Thanks, Guy. Appreciate it. Always happy to join you. Have a good one. Bill Malugin on The Guy Benson Show. We continue after this short break. The Guy Benson Show. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts.
Happy hour on the Guy Benson Show. I saw this story in Axios based on a poll that they commissioned asking young people about political disagreements. And the lead is this. Nearly a quarter of college students wouldn't be friends with someone who voted for the other party's presidential candidate, with Democrats far more likely to dismiss people than Republicans. And we've seen this actually in a similar way, a similar phenomenon when it comes to social media and unfriending people, for example, or blocking people simply because you disagree with them. This is much more of a thing on the left than on the right. There is intolerance on the right, no question about it, but the lion's share of it is happening on the left. And they justify it by saying, well, we're very tolerant, we're very open-minded, but not when it comes to intolerance and close-mindedness, which is very tautological and has a few pitfalls, you might say, logically. Like, I think there's a line that people have in their mind of what they can tolerate and what they can't in terms of dissenting views or particularly odious views on any given issue of racial attitudes and that kind of thing. But if we're talking about just like the other party voting for the other side, supporting the other team's presidential nominee, that's not really a bright moral line unless you are a very blinkered, intolerant person and someone who is extremely, extremely self-righteous and unwilling to countenance even mainstream, normal, garden-variety disagreements. So the poll was of college students, and here are the percentages. College students who would not fill in the blank with someone who voted for the opposing presidential candidate. College students who would not work for someone of the opposite party. 7% of Republican college students say that they wouldn't. 30% of Democrats who are college students said they wouldn't work for a Republican. Be friends with. 5% of Republican college students say they would not be friends with someone who had voted, in this case, for Joe Biden. And finally, go out on a date with. 31%, almost a third of Republican college students say, I'm not interested in dating someone of the other party. Among Democrats, that number is 71% among college students. I'll just say this. In my history of dating people, in my family, in my friend group, there are lots of people with whom I have profound political disagreements that are important elements of my life, and I would not have it any other way. And my life would be less fulfilling, less joyful, and less interesting, probably less funny too, if not for those people. And I would just beg Young folks, especially apparently on the blue side of things, if this is what they feel like the right thing is, to please reevaluate and reconsider that because it's not true. I promise you that. It's a sad way to live your life in a partisan echo chamber. Avoid it. You'll be grateful if you do. You'll also have a more interesting life and you'll be better informed. The Guy Benson Show continues as soon as we come back. It's the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour. Welcome back. Earlier today, we spoke with Mark Thiessen, Washington Post columnist, Fox News contributor, former presidential speechwriter, 
and he and I talked about the Biden administration's policy vis-a-vis Russia and Ukraine, China, and a lot more. Here's a taste of my conversation with Mark Thiessen. I do want to shift to foreign policy, Mark, here, because there's this story that I saw from the AP about Ukraine. And here's the paragraph that just stopped me in my tracks talking about uh, the Biden administration and their position here, which I think, you know, you can you can argue that it's been weak overall, that they've sent bad signals to the world about American weakness. You look at Afghanistan and, and other contributing factors. They've at least done some things and said some of the right things you would think about Russia and what Russia appears to be poised to do. And then you've got this. Biden, this is from the Associated Press today, Biden, the president, spoke by phone Thursday, so earlier today, with the Ukrainian president, although no no details were available immediately after their discussion. Administration officials, this is the key point, administration officials have suggested that the United States will press Ukraine to formally cede a measure of autonomy to eastern Ukrainian lands now controlled by Russia-backed separatists who rose up against Kiev in 2014. So if I'm understanding this correctly, Mark, Putin sends 175,000 troops to the border Uh and is setting the stage, it would appear, through his actions and various movements and preparations to invade Ukraine. And the United States, while saying, oh, there'll be very serious ramifications if you do this and this will not be acceptable and you just wait for the sanctions and we're going to send defensive weapons to Ukraine and all that stuff, which is fine. I support all of that, if not more. But then they're telling Putin out of the other side of their mouth, well, just hold off. We might be able to convince Ukraine to just give you effectively some of their territory to make an invasion unnecessary, basically. And I know these comparisons get overblown and overused, Mark, but I do remember when a certain other leader, and I'm not comparing Putin with Hitler, but when you try to appease bad people with territory, historically it often doesn't end up terribly well. I'm sort of amazed that they are publicly putting on the table, with everything that Russia is doing, a Ukrainian appeasement surrender of territory. It's more terrible. Remarkable. I mean, have these people not heard of the Sudetenland? I mean, this right. is like he's he's channeling his inner Neville Chamberlain. It's insane. I mean, look, there's got to be at some point there's got to be a diplomatic solution to what's going on in the Donbass region. But you don't do it at the point of a gun, and you don't reward Vladimir Putin uh, with concessions for for uh, doing it for for massing troops on the border. Look. There's there's a there's a model here for how you handle something like this. If you recall, in 2008, when I was in the White House, George W. Bush was president. Um, the Putin invaded the Republic of Georgia, and here's what George W. Bush did when he was when he was, when he was threatening to march on Tbilisi and uh, and uh, and uh, take the capital and overthrow the government there. He, he in an echo of the 1948 Berlin airlift. He sent U.S. Navy and Coast Guard ships into the Black Sea, and he sent U.S. military aircraft to Tbilisi on a humanitarian aid mission and had American planes flying into Tbilisi uh, with, 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 uh, with, with humanitarian aid and basically dared Vladimir Putin to come to Tbilisi while American troops were on the ground. And that was, it was a level of brinksmanship. It was like the Berlin airlift where he basically said, we're, we're flying American troops. If you come to Tbilisi... Guess what? There's going to be U.S. soldiers there, and you don't want to get into a situation where you're going to stand up with American forces. And Putin well, I think off. a lot of 
the American people don't want our troops necessarily in the middle of this, and Biden has ruled that out. I I will note combat, that Jen Psaki, go ahead. No, but not it wasn't. They did, they weren't on a combat mission. They were on a humanitarian mission. They were right. they were bringing humanitarian aid to to Tbilisi, but it was a subtle message to Putin that if you come to Tbilisi, there's going to be American troops there. And that was enough to, to make him back off the thought of having that, uh, that conflict, whereas Biden has completely taken use of our military off the table. We should be having flights going into, into Kiev right now. There's no Russians near Kiev. We should be flying into Kiev with humanitarian aid, and quite frankly, with Javelin missiles and military aid. That full interview with Mark Thiessen of The Washington Post and a Fox News contributor available online, GuyBensonShow.com, the podcast free on demand every day, GuyBensonShow.com foxnewspodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch. how do you decorate your Christmas tree? Apparently, this is a big fight over whether you do the lights from the bottom up or the top down. I didn't realize that people did it differently than I did. Maybe that's myopic. We'll have that discussion when we come back on The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. Home stretch here on the Guy Benson Show is it's about that time of year, getting to look and feel a lot like Christmas. And we are glad that you are here with us. GuyBensonShow.com, podcast free every day. Follow us on social at Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram. We get a lot of good stuff there. Info about guests. We post audio, sometimes photos, occasionally a poll. So we got into this in our meeting earlier today about how one decorates a Christmas tree when it comes to the lights. And I guess Quiet Wyatt got into, what, an argument about this recently or at least a spirited discussion? Yes, very spirited discussion about how you decorate a Christmas tree when you're putting your Christmas lights up. So to me, what we always have done is you plug in the lights, which has a plug typically near the floor, so they light up because it is better to string the lights while they're illuminated so you can sort of see where you're going and if there's any spots that you've missed or whatever. So that would, to me, lend itself, that process, to starting at the bottom of the tree, then working your way up and up and up. Now, we have a tall tree. As you all saw at the Christmas party, it's over nine feet tall because we have high ceilings on our ground floor, like our main level. And so what we did, we had multiple strands. So we went all the way up to the top of the tree and then back down again with an extra emphasis on the front side of the tree where most people would see it. So that's how we did it, zigzagging back down after going fully around bottom up and then from the top down for like the remainder of those lights. That's, as far as I see it, just common sense. But apparently there are some sociopaths who for some reason start the lights at the top of the tree. I don't even know how you do that logistically. There's not a plug at the top of the tree. Well, unless you have a fake tree, which is a whole separate issue and its own problem. Wyatt, are you a bottom-up sort of guy on the Christmas tree lights? Yes, guy. It, I just I don't understand how you I mean, so I guess how I understand it is if you were going to do it from the top bottom, you would t- plug the lights in and strand them all the way to the top and then work your way down. But that just it defies 
reality and and physics of, of making Yeah, then you've got like work. that one weird vertical string of lights. Exactly. I guess going up the back, what's the point of that? I don't understand what the advantage is. I mean, it's not exactly. like the end of the world. I just don't get it. Are you a real tree person? 1,000%. It okay. has to be real, Good. mainly for the smell. I think that's right. The smell and just a few other things. I find in the home setting, a plastic Christmas tree to be less than desirable. Now, some people have to do it for whatever reason. In public settings, right, where, you know, stores and restaurants, like, I get it. And some people love their fake Christmas trees. They swear by them. They say it's easy. It's much less expensive. You get one one time. It's the perfect height. You don't have to do a whole thing every year going to find one. And I actually like that process. It helps me get into the mood of the season. Now, producer Christine, I'm going to guess that you're a fake tree person that does lights from the top down. So I am, of course, I'm a fake tree person. How can you put a real tree up in October? By the time Christmas rolls around, all the needles would be gone. That's why you don't start Christmas in October or November. You do Christmas at Christmas. Then you can have a real tree with all the smells of the Christmas tree and all the excitement of bringing it into the house and setting it up. No, but I have the sensicles, so it smells like a Christmas tree. I put those little things right into the tree. Fake. Smells delicious. Um, also, the tree is pre-lit, so we don't have to worry about stringing anything because it just pops on. The only thing that I wish my tree did have was the option. Isn't that sad? No. You just sort of truck something out of the attic and you plug it in and there's your little plug-and-play Christmas tree. Isn't that, doesn't that take some of the magic out of it? No, not at all. I love it. Ugh. I love it. And but the only thing I do wish, and I'm sure there's a tree out there. It's probably very expensive. I wish that I could go back and forth. Like Bobby likes white lights on a tree. I would prefer colored lights on the tree. So I wish like there was a switch where, you know, like one night I could have the colored lights and one night he could have the white lights. Um, but as for now, we just have the white lights. We only do white lights. Oh, I saw yeah, it's, it's the classy, classic look. That's the way that we go. There's a place for different color Christmas lights, right? I don't hate them in all contexts. I don't. Just for my particular aesthetic, I but, like well, the what, white. What is an aesthetic? I mean, listen, clean. your home your home is lovely, and walking into your home, you, you had some lights on outside, but those were like everyday lights. You could you could keep those up year-round. I didn't see what was so festive and what was Christmas-like about that. Now, if you come so to having, my- Having lights on my trees and on the roof line, that's a Christmas setting. I would not have those year-round. You could, you and you should. Up, no, it would look ridiculous. No. It would look ridiculous. Why does he have Christmas lights on in April? We would never do that ever, ever. Those are Christmas lights. That's why. And then they get turned off January 2nd. Done. And then we start to consider them again ahead of Thanksgiving and we light them up after Thanksgiving, preferably December 1st. So that's the Christmas for that's the Christmas season for lights, in my opinion, and just for other things like music, et cetera, as well. You came to the party, Christine. You walked, you saw the house all illuminated outside. Then you came inside. You saw the tree dead center straight ahead. Did you look at that and say, oh, gosh, I don't, it's not colorful enough. And it's too real. It smells too authentic. I wish it were plastic and pink. 
No, I did not think that guy. But I also don't Thank think you. when I walk into my home that I stare at my Christmas tree and think, ugh. It's so tacky. Or I don't look at my C9s outside that are multicolored and think, ugh, that's tacky. I think it looks really festive. What's a C9? Oh, those are the big bulbs. Remember the old school? Like I told Bobby. Oh, okay. We have to have the big bulbs. I was thinking more about C4. I take some C4 to your blow-ups and literally blow them up. I got inspired there for a second. By the way, we were thinking about having, and by that I mean Christine was pitching herself to go be our correspondent our chief christmas tree correspondent this evening earlier this hour with the relighting of the new christmas tree out front in new york because i'm in dc at the tony snow studio cookie christine works out in new york city so she wanted to go down with her cell phone and cover quote unquote the new tree lighting after the previous tree was burned down as we mentioned earlier the guy who burned it down has already been released they didn't even hold him on bail because of these reforms quote unquote in new york So I hope he doesn't come back and do it again because he's just out there and he told the police that he was obsessed with the idea of burning it down. I don't know if that obsession just goes away, but hopefully this tree is uh, protected now. Christine wanted to be there for the for the lighting of it. I think she would probably not be chief Christmas tree correspondent, more like maybe chief eggnog correspondent here at the show. In fact, I had repurposed some song lyrics earlier. And we bumped in on the broadcast, if you're listening live on the show, with Rockin' Around the Christmas Tree. I had reimagined that song, that classic Christmas carol, which is stumbling around the Christmas tree. Right? That's That would be Christine's version of it. Stumbling around the Christmas tree, it's a super drunk cookie. Right? Something like that. You like that, Christine? No, I don't. And you are denying me... The chance to be your chief reporter. Hit it, Josh. This is Christmas Cookie here, Guy Benson, and I'm reporting live from the GB Chopper One right over the Fox News brand new tree. Wouldn't, wouldn't that sound amazing? There was no discussion of a helicopter. Where I feel you like you always need a chopper in the background. <laughs> to do reporting? Yeah, I don't know. I always like I, I like the chopper sound. You know, it sounds more official, don't you think? I don't know, because you said you wanted to report from the ground, which is the opposite of from the air. Plus, I can sort of imagine you having a little bit too much of a tipple of the eggnog and leaning out to see the tree. And oh, down goes Cookie. Cookie is now impaled on the new tree. That's what would happen. And we'd have a huge HR nightmare with so much paperwork. No, this was the right call having you watch it with the rest of the country on the five, safely multiple floors away. I also didn't quite understand what the plan would have been because it would have just been like people saying things in the background and you on your cell phone, were you going to like go up to people and just try to interview them? Yes. And like yes, put I was your going cell to. phone, like your, your iPhone, like in their face to get comment? I was also thinking... You know, I could have figured out how to get into the shot on TV and then like wave to you and be like, oh, my gosh, our show is on TV and radio. I had a lot of ideas. And for some reason, you put me on air every day to make fun of me. (laughs) Tell everybody how much I like to drink. Tell everybody I'm a psychopath, that I have no taste, that I'm use psychopath often, only occasionally that I'm hysterical. You're trying to like slip into the into the camera shot. 
on the five. See, that right there, I think, is a problem. Like, you got Lawrence Jones out there with Abby Hornacek and all the bigwigs at Fox. Then all of a sudden, just out of nowhere, you get this grinning cookie shows up with a Santa elf hat and a little uh, little nip of something in her not-so-secret actually that she brought along. I actually do have a Santa uh, headband, Josh. Don't you see it right there? Um, and I, I was going to put that on to be festive. But you denied me. I don't understand. You you let me come on air. You make fun of me all the time. The one time I want to be a serious reporter and really bring the news to you, you deny me. Maybe we could have allowed it if only you went down there dressed in a hot dog costume, which is your go-to serious reporter, hard-hitting man-on-the-street attire. But then the problem would be like you'd bump into like a top executive, right? Like the Murdochs or something would be there. You'd be like, oh, hi, I'm Cookie. I work for Guy Benson. That'd be the end of my career. We got we to gotta keep Cookie away from high-risk situations. Starting to know my place on this show. Executive producer? Oh, yeah, that too. <laughs> Whoops. All right, we are out of time. We got to get out of here. But I will say let's do a Twitter poll on the lights. Do you go from the bottom up decorating your tree or the top down? I feel like it's got to be a huge majority for bottom up. But maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm just like out of touch. Usually, though, I've got my finger on the pulse. At Guy Benson Show on Twitter. You can go vote. Lend your voice to this crucial debate, America, and we will take your responses under advisement. In the meantime, I'm off tomorrow. I will likely join the show but won't be hosting. Harry Hurley will be in here. I'll be back on Monday. Big show tomorrow, though. All the breaking news, we've got you covered. Same time, same place for The Guy Benson Show. Have a great night. Listen to be part of the conversation with me, Brian Kilmeade. I'll talk about the biggest stories of the day and get your take along with some of the biggest newsmakers around. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the podcast at briankilmeadeshow.com. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.